Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning, it's the final day of the month and this is Peter Lewis welcoming you to my podcast Money Talk for Thursday the 30th of November. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the US economy expanded more than previously reported in the third quarter, increasing debate about whether the Fed may have to raise interest rates further. The Commerce Department said on Wednesday that it now estimates GDP grew at an annualised pace of 5.2% in the third quarter. That's up from its initial estimates of 4.9% and it marks the strongest growth since the fourth quarter of 2021. The UK High Court has dismissed claims that the London Metal Exchange, which is owned by Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing, acted unlawfully when it cancelled millions of dollars worth of nickel trades. Hedge fund Elliott and market maker Jane Street Global accused the world's largest metal exchange of making hasty and unlawful decisions and claimed 472 million US dollars in compensation for the voided nickel trades, which occurred on the 8th of March 2022, and the LME suspended trading for more than a week. But the judge dismissed all of their claims. The COP28 UN climate talks begin today in Dubai, with researchers warning that the planet is careering towards climate disaster and governments are acting too slowly to avert it. Diplomats from nearly 200 countries and many heads of state and government will gather to try to draft a plan to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. The hope is COP28 will help limit the long-term global temperature rise to one and a half degrees which the UN's climate science body says is crucial to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Jack Ma has urged Alibaba to change and reform the e-commerce giant he founded after abandoning its only recently announced restructuring plan. In a post published on Alibaba's internal forum on Wednesday, Mr. Ma said, I firmly believe that Alibaba will change and reform. I believe that Alibaba employees are always watching and listening, he said. His surprise intervention was in response to an employee who posted about the stunning third quarter financial results from PDD Holdings, which saw Alibaba's rival nearly double revenue to 9.4 billion US dollars. In his post, Mr. Marl congratulated PDD on their execution over the past few years and added it was only companies that reformed for the future that earned respect. On today's programme, I'm joined by Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and William Ma, Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group. And with a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Business Development Director at SafePro Group. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. stocks were mixed on Wednesday but are on track for a big monthly gain. The S&P 500 ticked down by 0.1% to end at 4,551. The Dow was up 13 points, that's under 0.1%, to close at 35,430. And the Nasdaq Composite slipped by 0.2% to 14,258. The major averages are on track for strong monthly gains. The S&P 500 is up 8.5% in November and the Dow is up 7.2% month to date. And the Nasdaq has climbed 11% over the same period. The yield on the benchmark 10-year bond dipped 7 basis points to 4.27%. That's the lowest level since September. The 2-year yield fell 10 basis points to 4.65%. 
Brent crude oil rose 1.7% to $83.10 a barrel, ahead of a delayed meeting of OPEC Plus later today to discuss production cuts. Sources told Reuters that deeper cuts, as well as the rolling over of current cuts, are both on the table. Gold prices rose to a new six-month high on Wednesday and extended the November gain to over 3%. Spot prices rose for a fifth consecutive session, climbing 0.2% to $2,045 a troy ounce. That's the highest level since early May. The US dollar index edged up 0.1% to 102.9% on Wednesday after GDP growth figures for the US were revised higher for Q3. The index has slid 3.6% since November began. That's the worst monthly performance since November 2022. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite erased Tuesday's gains, falling 0.6% to 3,022. Hong Kong equities continued their slump into a fourth day. The Hang Seng Index plunged 361 points, that's 2.1%, to a five-week low of 16,993, with all sectors lower. And the Benchmark Index has lost more than 5% now over the past four trading days. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index tumbled 4.1%, taking its losses over the past four days to over 10%, and more than wiping out Thursday's surge of 6.4% following the news of government-led financing support for the property sector. Hong Kong-listed shares of Chinese delivery firm Metuan plunged 12.2% to their lowest level since late March 2020, as it warned of slowing demand for its services in the fourth quarter. And shares of Alibaba were down 2.2% in Hong Kong after Jack Ma urged the company he co-founded to embark on fundamental change. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to open lower again this morning. Uh, Futures markets pointing to a decline of about um, 0.6%. That's around 93 points and starting at around about 16,900. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which is at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. On this final day of November, let's welcome our Thursday morning guest. We have with us Andrew Ferris, who is the CEO of Econosis Advisory. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Good morning, indeed. And also with us is William Ma, who is Chief Investment Officer of Grow Investment Group. Morning to you, William. Good morning, Peter and Andrew. Okay, let's start with the US, this, uh, this revision of third quarter GDP. The US economy expanded more than previously reported in the third quarter, Increase, increasing debate about whether the Fed may have to raise interest rates further. The Commerce Department said yesterday that it now estimates GDP grew at an annualised pace 5.2% in the third quarter. That's up from its initial estimate of 4.9%, also um, above economists' forecasts of 5%. It's the strongest growth since the fourth quarter of 2021. The revisions came from non-residential investments, which was revised higher and also residential investment rose for the first time in nearly two years. Trade also added to GDP, with exports soaring 6%, and consumer spending, that rose 3.6%, slightly less than 4% in the advance estimate, but still the biggest gain since Q4 of 2021. Prices also increased slightly less than expected during the quarter. A core measure of inflation was revised down to a year-on-year increase of 2.3% from 2.4%. Andrew, um, what do you make of this? This, this this surely can't continue, can it? Well, there are, there are two things here. First, these are backward-looking data. In other words, it, was, it told us what was happening to GDP on the third quarter. Mm. And uh, if it was increasing quite significantly, as it was on an annualized basis, then yes, the argument is, should the Fed 
take this as a sign that things are not going to work. But the answer is, of course, we have much more recent information on inflation. And this is, for example, the last uh, October number, which was 3.2, down from September 3.7, and uh, again, uh, flat from the previous month. So at least inflation itself over a four-month period is flat to falling. And that was much more newer news, okay, than uh, the June quarter on which the GDP growth is based. So I think it would be unwise to think that uh, this is something that the Fed will jump on. It's, it is really basically one-on-one economics. Mm. William, I mean, it's pretty strong, isn't it? I mean, compared to what we're seeing in other parts of the world, um, it's been a good um, third quarter uh, for the US, a good year for the US economy overall, defying all the expectations of a recession. Yes, exactly. When I talk to some uh, business owner in the States, actually, I think are seeing a sign that the Fed uh, will pause potentially in rate high, really improve the sentiment, as you can see you know, reflected in the investment side. Uh, in the portfolio management side, I was talking to one of the largest uh, wealth management companies CL in the world. They said if you miss the November kind of like rally, you know, basically, you know, your year is done. So there is only two months. Uh, in this year that uh, potentially you can get good profit, which is January and November, you know, this year. And lastly, on the consumption figure, I think it echoed with uh, what uh, PDD Pingdodo has been reported, you know, uh, export, you know, or, you know, low-end consumption, you know, globally they're exporting. So I think that helped to reduce some of the inflation figure and reflect the uh, global uh, demand on the consumption product from China. Andrew, when does the consumer run out of steam? One of the noticeable things, particularly over this holiday shopping season, is how much of the purchases have been done on buy now, pay later uh, sort of credits, which has surged now to a to a record high. It suggests that um, the stimulus money has run out and consumers are now building up debts to, uh, to finance this spending spree. Well, there has been there has been two divergent things here, neither of which left me hugely impressed. One was that over the COVID period, and now we are talking 19, 20, 21, 22, uh, consumers saved a lot of money and then they proceeded to spend it. Um, mm. The reason why I never bought that was that the surge in spending we saw once the COVID restrictions were lifted uh, was not simply accumulated savings coming into the market. It was simply consumers going back to normal. If uh, for several months I couldn't go to the cinema, going to the cinema now was not a splurge, but was simply returning back to normal. The other part is, is if it is run on credit, and if it is run on credit, will credit run out? Well, at the same time, we're having indications that the Fed may, may just be ready to take a stop on increases in interest rates which in a way you will say it is backstopping. If I accumulated a lot of credit, particularly on credit cards, I may not have to finance it at higher interest rates. I'm afraid I'm, I'm really struggling here because I don't find enough traction on the notion that uh, a very good Black Friday is always an indication that uh, of a lot more things to come because all these are one-off incidences. In Black Friday, simply you buy because you get huge discounts, Mm -hmm. not because you have a lot of savings and you're planning to spend them. Mm. So my answer is is no. Actually, I 
I, I don't really buy that we're going to see something significant happening to what consumers have been doing so far. And as far as, for example, and I'll stop here because I'm talking too much, as far as, for example, uh, retail sales are concerned, this has been reasonable and I much prefer to speak on those rather than anything else. Mm. William, do you think inflation is going to continue to decline? That has been the main trend, hasn't it, in the United States since since April, really. And that's the thing uh, that has excited investors and made them believe that the Fed is going to stay on hold. Is, is that uh, are, are we going to get back, do you think, to the, the target of 2%? Uh, on the product side, I think um, um, it will remain low. You know, when I talk to some of the Chinese export and manufacturer, I don't see any huge price increase, you know, given, you know, there is more buying power from the consumer side. So I think, you know, uh, if uh, uh, inflation due to price increase in goods uh, from China is unlikely, but I think the moving part, if you like, would be, again, the oil. Uh, if oil, you know, uh, come back, you know, due to geopolitical reason or other reason, that would, you know, come up as well. And lastly, on the consumption, I think we are seeing mixed message from the exporter in China. Uh, a lot of a lot of the um, uh, infantry, you know, this year is the old infantry in which we are not seeing huge new long order, you know, from the China exporter in toys, you know, bikes, etc. Uh, from the manufacturer that I talked to, they are seeing orders coming back again. But um, the level is kind of like uh, small, meaning that uh, um, the distributor want to keep maybe three months or less of infantry, which means, you know, uh, cons- uh, confidence is, is there, but not huge, you know, from a global consumption perspective. Mm. Uh, Andrew, the, the 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 moves that we're seeing in government bond yields in in equities, which are obviously correlated, is based on this market optimism that we're going to get what they call good rate cuts. In other words, interest rate declines that come from disinflation, but at the same time doesn't cause any significant fall um, in growth. Do you, do you believe that scenario? Well, you know, it, there, are, there is always something when it comes to interest rates that uh, allows the economist to say, but on the other hand, <laughs> and frankly, I hate this because I prefer to stick my neck out and say yes or no. So on the <laughs> one hand, if we're going to have cuts in interest rates, that is going to be good, uh, but uh, and therefore uh, uh, sort of pushing against this inflation. But on the other hand, you know, Peter, I prefer to, to to sort of state it as simply as I possibly can, is, is that the Fed hasn't finished, sorry, has not made any decision on cutting interest rates. And I don't think interest rates are going to be cut for several months. So I think playing along with that and simply observing what the rest of the economy is doing is the best one can do. And as I said before, trying to outguess the Fed on when they are going to cut is not at all the same thing as trying to have a reasonably good shot by using an econometric model, by using some common sense on whether inflation next time is going to fall. They are two completely different forms of, uh, of forecasting. And I absolutely refuse to guess what the Fed is going to do. I prefer to stick on what the real economy is telling me. Do you think, William, without uh, putting your neck on the block, it's it's very hard to know exactly what the Fed is going to do. But the market, for sure, is very optimistic. They believe that we're going to have more disinflation. Um, it's not going to cause any significant fall in growth and rate cuts will come, uh, not because mm. the economy is collapsing, but because inflation is coming down to, to targets. Is that a scenario mm. for, that you believe in for the U.S.? 
Yep, I think Peter is a fund manager. Our neck is out anyway. No matter we make any prediction, because our portfolio is reflecting of what our investment view. Um, uh, from a Chinese, you know, investor offshore investment perspective, I think one of the most uh, crowded and kind of like consensus trade right now is along uh, the twenty-year uh, U.S. dollar treasury, if you like. Mm. So, um, you know. Besides, you know, safety deposit, I think there is a market consensus that, you know, rate decrease potentially would benefit, uh, uh, you know, this type of, you know, government bond. So um, it's already kind of like reflected in the sentiment. And um, I think it's a very, you know, crowded and common trade when I talk to the investors. Well, JP Morgan's client survey uh, shows that active investors uh, have been anticipating this. Net longs now in the Treasury market have jumped to a record 78% of those uh, surveyed. So, you know, you're absolutely right, William, that people seem to be uh, very, very um, bullish. And, and Treasury bonds, which were underwater for most of this year, have now recovered and are actually in positive territory. But they were on track to, uh, to fall for the third consecutive year. So, William, it's been quite a stunning turnaround, hasn't it, for the, the Treasury bond market? Exactly. And um, I think that reflects the risk appetite, you know, for, for the investor and client, in particular in the region. I think people, you know, some of them invested in the U.S. market, you know, uh, before and now. But at the same time, people are about, you know, recession or slowdown economy and they are trying to take profit. And what else the money will go there, you know, besides, you know, uh, the banks in safety deposit, then I would uh, see, you know, a trend either in investment grade, uh, a corporate bond in the States and uh, the pitch for some private bank is uh, you are getting hold to maturity for a core credit portfolio of around 6.5%. While some investor or family office, they would rather go direct and, you know, take the uh, 20 years, you know, treasury. Mm. So I think it's a very uh, reasonable and common theme in the market right now. And Andrew, isn't this, though, all undoing what uh, Jerome Powell said was, you know, a good thing, which in other words, the market was doing the tightening uh, for him by, by Treasury yields rising. It was equivalent to another 25 basis point rate hike, and therefore they could take a more relaxed approach. We're now seeing that all being unwound um, and more. Um, so I suppose it's going to be interesting to see now what he says on Friday, isn't it? Whether or not he pushes back against this uh, loosening of financial conditions. Well, <laughs> Again, you know, whatever, it's sort of have you stopped beating your husband kind of a question. Whatever you say turns out to be wrong. Uh, if Powell actually says, I don't like the fact that uh, long-term yields are falling because uh, I haven't yet made up my mind whether to cut interest rates and this is jumping the gun. I have no idea what he's going to say. But if I was Powell, I would say, so what? You know, if the markets decide that I'm going to cut interest rates, I know exactly whether I'm going to do it or not. <laughs> I'm not going to tell them. Okay. And I'm not going to say whether they're going to pay for it dearly or they're going to find themselves or we're on the right side of the trade. So uh, hopefully he's not going to say anything. He'll say, you know, I observe that markets feel that uh, things are getting better. Okay. And therefore, uh, they are telling us that we are going to cut interest rates. Well, <laughs> we are not telling them that. Mm. Okay, well, let's turn to local markets here uh, in Hong Kong, first of all. Um, equities have continued their slump into a fourth day. The Hang Seng was down 2.1% yesterday. It's at a five-week low. Um, 
The benchmark index has lost 5% now over the past four uh, trading days. It's also wiped out all of its gains for November. And year to date, it's down 14.1%. That's the worst performer out of the major equity indices globally. William, any sign at all uh, that the pain is coming to an end for, for investors in Hong Kong? Well, not not likely, you know, uh, before the Chinese New Year. I think, you know, um, sentiment for global investors towards, you know, Hong Kong and China remains uh, weak. And uh, we are not also seeing huge kind of light southbound flow to the market. There's no doubt valuation is very attractive, uh, but I think sentiment is weak and people are waiting for catalysts. Um, although the Chinese government has been addressing the key issue again and again, which is the real estate sector reform, but it seems investor is not buying in. I think the um, tipping point, if you like, um, is done for the first one is uh, an improved, you know, uh, geopolitical relationship between, you know, US and China. I think that one checked the box already. The next one, you know, got to be companies' earnings and also economy. And there are some little bright spots in the market, maybe not on the Hong Kong side, but on the um, ADL side, like Pinduoduo, Peter, you mentioned earlier. The stock, you know, went up 20 plus percent when they announced good earnings. So I think um, there is still some risk capital if there are company-specific kind of like a uh, positive earnings surprise. Um, that's why I think the rebound, the first leg could be quite sector and company-specific rather than uh, all uh, risk-on, you know, scenario. Mm. But the the market and investors don't really seem to be comforted by the measures the government is announcing to to, to try and support uh, the property sector. And I hear the latest thing that's being talked about is a sort a sort of form of quantitative easing. Although I, I don't really know exactly what they what they plan to do there, but there seems to be more measures in the pipe for for the property sector. Yes, Peter. I think to be honest, investor locally and globally are super demanding. So we are talking about addressing one of the biggest kind of light leverage, you know, in the world, the real estate sector. And, you know, it's only taking about, you know, three to four years and China reopen is less than one year. And um, I think investors are very demanding on that part. Um, having said that, we are seeing a lot of dry powder in the market. That's why when the market recover and spike, um, should the short term moment come, come back, I would suggest investors to catch it. Uh, for example, year to day, um, the saving rate of the China retail is three times more than a normal year, which means there is a huge, you know, dry powder, you know, in, in their bank account. And if they see, you know, the, the momentum is coming back, they would put into it. Same as the mutual fund uh, industry, you know, despite the like looser kind of like uh, Asia's market, I think the mutual fund are getting, you know, inflow as well. So in short, um, people are, 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 are um, cautious, you know, and um, but I think there are dry powder on the table. And uh, should there are uh, some positive sign or momentum, I believe um, investors should not be too super cautious, given it's all pricing by the by the market. Andrew, what are your thoughts? Do you have any any uh, any feelings of optimism that maybe things are going to turn around soon for for Hong Kong equities and Chinese equities as well? The answer is no. First, in the case of Hong Kong. Uh, we're going back to how boring, Peter. I apologize to your to your audience. American interest rates. Look, if if they are not coming down, then they are not coming down in Hong Kong. And since my view is they're not going to come down for still several more months, then uh, Hong Kong is not going to see any alleviation of the pressure on interest rates. Point number one. Point number two. The Hong Kong's property market is really in the doldrums. I mean, it has been mm. it has been performing 
very poorly, and I will go back to that again and again, including a more or less a failed auction of land by the Hong Kong government. It withdrew from uh, from the auction because it didn't have enough uh, enough uh, enough appropriate bids. And the third point is, is well, this is a little bit too Machiavellian. If the Chinese property sector was suddenly to recover, or the Chinese uh, 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 authorities were to do something dramatic enough for it to see it as a pivotal point, I'm not quite sure whether this would be bullish or bearish for the Hong Kong market <laughs> to the extent that it might switch some of the funding that could have gone into Hong Kong into China. Mm. Okay, and therefore, if the if the property sector in China becomes better, I'm not quite sure that this will be automatically be translated into good news for Hong Kong. As long as interest rates in Hong Kong are not falling, and remember, China doesn't follow the Fed; they can do whatever they want. And of course, as long as the property sector in Hong Kong doesn't have its own steam behind it, it's a little bit of a convoluted reaction. But the answer is is no. Given all those things, I cannot possibly. Be, be, be optimistic in the case of the Hong Kong equities, in the case of the Hong Kong property sector. Okay. William, what do you make about this um, unusual intervention by Jack Ma into, into Alibaba, urging them to change and reform? And he was basically praising the PDD group, uh, which is the, the group behind Pindodo and Temu. And uh, you know they had a big jump in their share price earlier on this week following their third quarter earnings. But this is quite unusual, isn't it? Well, Peter, it is not surprising, actually, from my perspective. And um, given one, uh, Jack Ma is an entrepreneur by nature. And second, I think he does has a leadership or revolution DNA, you know, for the whole China kind of like entrepreneurial sector. I think what the China business owner or a lot of companies right now is need revolution, reinventing ourselves and take more blunt move. Um, one of the key words, Peter and Andrew, uh, this year and last year in the market is uh, maybe you heard about it. It's called laying down, you know, mm. meaning that uh, some uh, middle management or some salespeople, you know, they're not doing anything, but, you know, laying down, you know, making less mistake. This is bad for the company because what uh, uh, mo- momentum or what company needs is keep, you know, achieving KPI, you know, make, thinking our new method. I think what Jack Ma right now doing is trying to, uh, at least from Alibaba perspective, to encourage the um, revolution, encourage innovation again, which is why they were successful at the first pace, you know, back in 2000. And second, hopefully to, you know, bring uh, or inspire some of the com- company to uh, go outside this vicious circle. So I think the Pindodo success story is a very important sign that despite the economy is not growing as fast as before, but if with innovation, if you're talking in the right sector, actually there are robust earnings growth. And Peter, that reminds me what happened in Japan, you know, during the 80s and 90s, there are some companies growing at 20, 30%, and those are the 100 uh, yen shop, if you remember. But mm. I think in economic slowdown situation, you know, uh, or consumption downgrade, there are certain sectors that's still worth investing, you know, um, such as the electric vehicle sectors, higher manufacturing. Those actually are in good momentum. And do you think this is a sign that maybe Jack Ma is going to get more involved in the company again? Uh, I think it's too early. 
But uh, you know what happened? Uh, Joe Chai coming back, you know, as the senior management and CEO, is meaning that there are already reform. Uh, but I think um, you know, Jack Ma is always a spiritual leader for Alibaba. So uh, the more outspoken he is, I think the more better for for the employee. Okay. Andrew, I want to finish off talking about a topic that you've been writing about a lot uh, recently, which is uh, which is climate change. The COP28 UN climate change talks begin today in Dubai. Researchers are warning that the planet is careering towards climate disaster and governments are acting too slowly to avert it. There's going to be diplomats from nearly 200 countries, heads of state and government. They're going to try and draft a plan to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels. And the hope is COP28 will help limit the long-term global temperature rise to one and a half uh, 1.5 degrees centigrade which the un's climate, yeah, climate science policy it says is crucial to avoid the worst impacts of climate change andrew what can we expect from this do you think expect absolutely nothing expect positively the worst i, I have never been so, <laughs> so 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 pessimistic look i've got in front of me the report of the united nations that was issued four days four days before the, 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 the Dubai meeting. And it is a beautiful cover that has the words broken record, temperature hits new highs, yet world fails to cut emissions. Mm. Bracket. Again. This is the United Nations literally screaming, what on earth is going on? You're doing absolutely nothing. You are breaking records in the sense of the temperatures and the emissions are going through in inverted commas the roof and you're doing absolutely nothing about that what mm. are we going to do about it and uh, i've i've read through the report and it's like reading oh, uh, the, the tibetan book of the dead i mean it is really really grim okay mm. and it is not grim on the basis that uh, we're all going to die it's simply very clear it says you already got a taste of how quickly the climate is changing in the course of 23. Okay, Greece was burned to the ground. Okay, places were flooded up to the roof. You know, what else do you want for this for this to happen? And the answer is, is nothing is going to happen. They are not going to agree on anything and they will continue to do as best as they can. And incidentally, the sad part of that, and I will finish, is, is that a great deal is being done. I mean, this is this is uh, this is the awkward part. It is not that countries, companies, regions are not doing things. They are doing a lot of things, but not anywhere near enough. I mean, this is what's the driving point. Not anywhere near enough. The idea is, is that by by year fifty, roughly, the global uh, warming should have been one point nine percent. It's going to be two point nine percent. I suppose we William... figure it's going to be nearly double that. I suppose, William, the problem is, and it's certainly true out here in Asia, isn't it, that sort of countries... I've given are... up, Peter. Okay. Yeah, maybe we should eat less steak and beef to help reduce the carbon emissions. <laughs> but in the investment world, in the uh, company world, I think when I trip through the pitch book or presentation of some global firms, always the first page is uh, ESG, sustainability, etc. But, you know, whether enough has been done on the working level or on the kind of like government or retail level, I think we need more. I uh, agree with Andrew that, you know, the, the situation is getting worse instead of getting better. And countries are worried, aren't they, about sacrificing growth? That's that's the, the issue for a lot of countries here, despite the fact that they probably realise they've got to do more. They want to try and do it without doing what they believe is sacrificing growth. 
Well, we have to give some credit at the same time, Peter, in particular on the uh, carbon emission side, we are seeing, you know, more and more development on the carbon credit, um, even in the China space. Uh, 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 you know, we are seeing some funds, some firms trying to buy the carbon credit. Um, mm. So direction is correct, but definitely more need to be done. And it's also reflected in the weather and temperature, isn't it? Okay, well, thank you both very much indeed for your comments this morning. You heard there William Ma, who is Chief Investment Officer at Grow Investment Group, and Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory. I'm joined now by Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at the SafePro Group over in Taipei in Taiwan. Very good morning to you, Ross. Good morning. Now, a new poll of Taiwanese voters found the outsider opposition candidates for president has jumped past the ruling party's candidate into the lead position ahead of the January 13th election. Ko Day, the Taiwan People's Party nominee, had an approval rating of 31.9% versus the 29.2% for the Democratic Party's uh, candidate. So, Ross, this is obviously starting to heat up, isn't it? And uh, particularly as the opposition failed to form this uh, alliance. Yeah, that was the big development uh, at the end of last week, because there had been uh, hopes that the opposition, so the Chinese Nationalist Party and the Taiwan People's Party uh, candidates could come to some kind of agreement. Uh, but that was unsuccessful but simply because they couldn't agree uh, who would be at the top and who would be the running mate. So that fell apart. And then the candidates uh, registered separately uh, and they announced who their running mates would be. Uh, but they registered separately and there, there won't be a joint ticket. And then uh, the founder of Foxconn Honhai, Terry Go, he suddenly decided that uh, even though he had enough petition signatures to qualify to run that he decided he was not going to run. Uh, To be frank with you, uh, the poll you cited is one among many, and there are just as many polls showing uh, William Lai, the candidate of the incumbent uh, ruling party, Democratic Progressive Party, and he's also the incumbent vice president, uh, that show him ahead. So uh, the polls are sending some very uh, broad signals at the moment, uh, but uh, we'll probably have lots of polls in the coming days and weeks as the campaign uh, heats up. And, uh, you know, it's not that far away. Voting days on January 13th. And is this um, shaping up to be a a close three-way race now? That's certainly what it looks like. Uh, It it looks like all three of these candidates are hovering around 30%, plus or minus uh, 2 or 3%. There's about 10% to 15% in most polls as undecided. So that's something to keep in mind uh, as well. Uh, If it shakes out this way that uh, the candidates are all going to be plus or minus 30%. The downside there, and I'm sure a lot of people will be talking about this as we get closer to the election, is that the winner might get elected with with uh, something that is clearly not a very strong mandate, especially keeping in mind that the current president, Tsai Ing-wen, she was reelected in 2020 with 57 percent of the vote. So you know, in any democracy, you'd say, oh, that's a that's a big mandate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the winner only gets 33 or 35 percent uh, this time around, again, it's not really a mandate. Mm. And um, is, is there a lot of difference between the parties? I mean, um Cohen Day, he used to be a member of the uh, the DPP, didn't he, many, many years ago. So is there a lot of difference between the two parties? 
Well, he wasn't a member, but he was endorsed by the DPP uh, when he the first time he ran for mayor of Taipei City in 2014. Uh, but they they didn't endorse him when he ran again in 2018. They had their own candidate. Uh, the, the biggest difference is going to be on China policy uh, when it comes to domestic policy and so social issues. Uh, the parties are pretty much aligned. They're all in favor of spending a lot of money uh, and maintaining uh, something that's that's uh, akin to a welfare state. Uh, but when it comes to China, they're big differences in the the Democratic Progressive Party. They don't believe in something called the 1992 consensus under which uh, Taiwan and China agree that there's one China and uh, they differ on the definition of one China. Taiwan side says Republic of China and the mainland side says People's Republic of China. That's what the 92 consensus is. Mm. Uh, the DPP government doesn't, doesn't believe in this and it looks like uh, Cohen of the TPP doesn't really believe in it, but he doesn't make a big issue of it either. And the Gomindang, the Nationalist Party, they, they, they've always believed in this and they believe that that's a good basis to conduct relations with the mainland. Um, so is China going to be, well, sorry, how is China going to react, do you think, to this? Are they going to try and influence the polls in any way? And can they do so? They probably can't influence the polls, although people will always speculate that they're trying to do so. So there'll be claims that they're trying to use uh, online uh, methods, you know, uh, fake accounts to bolster one candidate or another. Or there'll be accusations that they're sending in a lot of money to help one candidate or the other. Now, nominally, most people w- would assume that the the party that China favors would be the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang since they are the party that favors closer relations with China. Uh, however, there's another school of thought which says that China prefers William Lai of the ruling Democratic Progressive Party because then they have they have an enemy to talk about and, and they could pursue the nationalism uh, uh, card and, and say that the, the, the president of Taiwan is pro-independence and we need to prepare for war to stop that. So there is, the, like I said, there is this school of thought that says actually China prefers the candidate that they don't like the most to win. <laughs> okay, that's a, a perverse way of looking at it, but I suppose, yes, there's, there's some sense in that. What about the, the deputies? The um, William Lai has chosen the cat warrior um, as his deputy. How likely is that to sort of shake things up? Yeah, uh, so William Lai, he chose uh, the, uh, a woman who has been Taiwan's representative in the United States for a number of years. She likes to be called the cat woman, which is to draw a contrast with the so-called wolf warrior uh, diplomats of, of uh, the mainland's diplomacy. Uh, Ko Wenja, he he's chosen a legislator, uh, also a woman who comes from a, a very prominent and well-to-do business family. And uh, the Kuomintang has chosen a, a very outspoken television and radio personality, very outspoken in the sense that he, he favors closer relations with China. And do uh, any of these- you know, typically, yeah, you know, typically in a democracy, you don't think that the running mate makes a big difference. So as of now, I'll, I'll stick with that and say the focus is on the top of the ticket, not the running mate. Okay. And what else do voters want? Presumably, they're not just looking at China, are they? There must be domestic issues that they're concerned about. Are are there any other issues that are uh, featuring heavily in the polling? Yeah, the big the big domestic issue is the cost of housing. So the the, the cost of housing, whether to rent or to own, has been spiraling 
ever upward here in Taiwan for a number of years. Uh, so I would say the, 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 the cost of housing is by far the number one issue for the candidates. And then another issue would be stagnating wages, inflation, the usual kind of economic issues that people talk about in most countries. And uh, again, like like most democracies, pocketbook, uh, personal pocketbook, wallet issues uh, are, are always going to be very important. And what about young people? That's an important part of the electorate, um, isn't it? What are their concerns and what are they focusing on? Well, definitely focusing on uh, stagnant wages and the cost of housing. And, you know, they're, they're constantly told that they'll never be able to afford a home. So that's something that they, they worry about. Uh, the possibility of war and having to fight a war with China is also something that young people worry about as 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 well. Uh, it seems from uh, the polls, the common assumption is that young voters last time mostly voted for Tsai Ing-wen to be reelected. Uh, but Ko Wen-jeou seems to be the preferred candidate for young voters. So we have to wait and see if, if that's how things turn out or if they'll return to vote for the Democratic Progressive Party. Is, is there any sign that um, of, of people being just tired with the DPP and they just want to change? You often get that, don't you, after you've had governments in power uh, for, for quite a long time. Is that the case in Taiwan, too? Oh, for sure. There's definitely some voter fatigue with, with the Democratic Progressive Party. That's why their candidate is only polling in, in the low to mid-30s. And, and again, last time was the DPP ticket was re-elected with 57% uh, of the vote. So voter fatigue is definitely an issue uh, for the DPP. Some frustration that uh, they haven't followed through on all their campaign promises. Uh, some frustration with uh, various corruption cases that, uh, that unfortunately have occurred over their past eight years as well. Uh, interesting, though, it's not necessarily necessarily the case that voters reject the DPP because of, of its China policy, though. Uh, it's more, again, voter fatigue and, and maybe some frustration with corruption and, and failure to achieve some of their ca- campaign promises from four years ago. And why did Terry Go drop out? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, he had tried to work on a joint ticket as well, uh, if not including himself, then at least including uh, you know a joint ticket of, of the Nationalist Party and the Taiwan People's Party. He, he was part of those last minute discussions last Thursday. Uh, he showed up where at the venue where the discussions were ongoing. Uh, he was trying to facilitate that. Uh, so uh, he hasn't really explained clearly. So to give him the benefit of the doubt, it seems that his motivation is is let one of those people win, let either the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party, or the Taiwan People's Party candidate win, as long as it's not the Democratic Progressive Party candidate who wins. And and he was polling around 10%. So his endorsement, which he hasn't made yet, but an endorsement for either the Nationalist Party or the Taiwan People's Party can make a huge difference. It it might actually be the difference that that gives the victory to one of those candidates. So it seems that his motivation is that he could swing the vote. He could give his support to either the Taiwan People's Party, the Nationalist Party, and that'll be the margin of victory. Are his ambitions to be president basically over now because he's wanted to, to be president for a long time, hasn't he? I think it's over. Uh, age is an issue as well. Uh, and frankly, a lack of voter support. As I said, uh, he was only polling around 10 percent. He lost the Gomindang primary four years ago. So clearly he, he, he's not resonating with the voters. However, and there's a big however, if he does endorse uh, the ultimate winner, he could be positioning himself to serve as the premier. 
Okay, Ross, always fascinating to talk with you. Thank you very much indeed. That's Ross Feingold, who is Business Development Director at the Safepro Group over in Taipei in Taiwan. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening to Money Talk this morning. Do please take a look at my newsletter at peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com for more information on developments during the Asian Trading Day. I'll be back tomorrow with the first Money Talk of December. And I'll be joined by Francis Lund, the CEO of GEO Securities, and Kenny Wen, Head of Investment Strategy at KGI Asia. With a view from Australia, it's Toby Lawson, the CEO at Staten Partners. Have a good day. Money Talk.